Well, let me invite you, brethren, to take out your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 3. You were here two weeks ago. We began opening up this third chapter and considered the first 10 verses. Today we will focus in on verses 11 to 14. But with uh, the need for context, I just want to back up a little bit anyway, so at least to verse 8, and we'll pick up reading there to verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Our Lord speaking to Nicodemus about the doctrine of the new birth. Says the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Now, our text for today. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, this is the word of the Lord, brethren. Let us go to him together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we do ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of your Spirit that you would work in this time of the word preached and exposed to our hearts, that you would bring illumination, that particular and glorious work that only you can do. And so, Father, we pray that you would take the truths that we will hear today and, and sanctify us with them, Lord. We would draw nearer to Christ. We become more like him, that we would, Lord, walk in his steps. May you bless the preaching of your word in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brethren, what if I started my sermon today telling you that I just made a recent trip to the moon, and I started describing to you the landscape of the moon and what the dust on the moon looked like and what earth looked like as I was standing there looking back at earth. Well, your first thought probably would be, and rightly so, that as your, that your pastor's lost his mind and needs some psychological help. And of course, that would be true, but I, I truly hope none of you would believe me if I told you these things. But brethren, what if Buzz Aldrin, who's still living, by the way, like 93 or 94, what if he came in here today and he told you about the landscape of the moon? And he told you what the dust of the surface looked like. And he told you what earth looked like standing there looking back at earth. Would you believe him? Now, why would you believe Buzz Aldrin over your own pastor? Well, it's simple, isn't it? Because he's been there, and I haven't. Buzz Aldrin can testify to what it looks like to stand on the moon, what the conditions were like. But since you and I have not been there, it means that we are dependent on the testimonies of those who have been there and have experienced what it's like to be on the moon. They had firsthand account of it. Well, this illustrates, I think, in some small way what is being communicated to us in our passage today by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust I will be able to validate that as we open up the text this morning. 
But for now, let us remind ourselves of the context of the passage. Nicodemus came to our Lord by night seeking to know a little bit more about who this new miracle-working preacher was who had come into Jerusalem. And after some brief compliments, the Lord Jesus immediately jumps to the heart of man's biggest problem. How can sinful man enter the kingdom of heaven? Our Lord bypassing the small talk, bypassing any discussion on secondary religious matters, our Lord goes straight to what Nicodemus needed to hear most, and that is to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of heaven. When you die, you must, you must be born again. Nicodemus either doesn't get it or most likely doesn't want to believe it, so he asks Jesus again, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you know that I mentioned that it's possible that Nicodemus was being a little facetious and asking such a silly question. But either way, our Lord obliges him with a series of statements explaining the necessity and the doctrine of the new birth. He tells him that the Holy Spirit must cleanse you from your filth and give you a new heart or you can't enter heaven. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36. He tells him that with fallen man, there is no power, there is absolutely no ability to produce the new birth because that which is of the flesh is flesh. And then using the analogy of the wind, our Lord teaches Nicodemus that this necessary act of the new birth is a sovereign act of God, and it cannot be coerced or manipulated into occurring through your will, through your effort, through power of the fallen man. The wind blows where it wills, and so the Spirit of God grants the new birth to whom He wills. Now, this further teaching of our Lord Jesus confuses Nicodemus, or dumbfounds him, perhaps, where he says in response to Christ, how can these things be? Now, our Lord just clearly explained it to him, but Nicodemus doesn't get it. And so in comes our Lord's rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? We are to assume here that our Lord believes that Nicodemus should have known and so from this point forward, the, the dialogue becomes a discourse. The dialogue becomes a monologue, if you will. We do not hear again from Nicodemus to the end of chapter 7 of this gospel account. But what we have now, beginning today in verse 10 and all the way down to verse 21, is our Lord opening up even further the teaching of man's greatest need and how the Creator, God Himself, has purposed to save man to meet his greatest need. Everyone in here in this, day, in this room knows you're going to die. It's going to happen. And so where are we going to go when we do that? What happens afterwards? Well, it all centers around a message. It is a glorious message. It is so profound and deep that its depths cannot be wholly comprehended by the greatest of scholars, not even Nicodemus, who's the teacher of Israel. And yet it is also profound in its simplicity that, yes, children, you children in here today, even you can understand it. Even you can comprehend it. It's a glorious message, which takes us 
to my first and main point, and that is that this message is none other than the very gospel of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this may sound a little odd because for this reason, and that is that John's account never uses the word gospel. Matthew does, Mark does, Luke does, but you will not find it in the Greek or in the English, the word gospel or the word for gospel. But brethren, of the four gospel accounts, none is more saturated with the message of the gospel than John. For its whole purpose was to display the power and the truth of the gospel that sinners might be saved that they might believe, and in believing, they may have eternal life. So we have picture after picture of people getting converted and saved. Then we looked at the disciples, and we're going to look at the woman at the well, and the blind man, and John 9, and then Lazarus, and more and more of these conversions. Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 11, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. What is Jesus speaking of? What is he testifying of? And what is he bearing witness to? Well, brethren, it is the message of the gospel. For the gospel does not begin with just the good news. The message contains within it, necessarily so, the bad news if it's to be properly understood and believed. This is the great hurdle for fallen man. This is where he needs a miracle. You and I have never met anyone who believed that they were truly born spiritually dead who had not already been born again. I've never met one. Yeah, I know I'm spiritually dead. I know I'm blind to the things of God. I'll never figure them out unless I get a new birth. And so our Lord conveys the bad news to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because Nicodemus... Nicodemus, you were born spiritually dead in Adam. You are made of corrupt flesh, and corrupt flesh can only produce more corrupt flesh. Now, this is earthly knowledge. It should be obvious to all, and especially to a theologian like Nicodemus, that a man is sinful and that God is holy. In fact, you know this. You knew this before you were saved. The first time that you sinned, whether it was stealing the cookie from the cookie jar or lying to your mom or lying to your dad, your conscience pricked you. Where did that come from? Because you know there's a God. You know it. It's proof that God exists. It's proof that we know we're condemned and we need a Savior. Now, you suppress it if you're not saved. You suppress that. You just go on with life and not worry about it. And then there's a layer upon the heart, and it keeps getting harder and harder and callous until evil men do greater evil. But Paul said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're upset that I told you you must be born again. But you should already know this. This is, this is basic knowledge, Nicodemus. This is religion 101. Your conscience has told you this, but you don't want to hear it, Nicodemus. Even if you took some time to really think through the logic of the gospel, the logic of the new birth, and Nicodemus, I think, is doing it. But he has not the power to believe it because he is born a rebel at heart. He's born a rebel at heart. So Nicodemus, how are you going to hear and believe the good news if you don't want to believe the bad news? 
Well, to put it in our Lord's own words, he says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, this takes us to something that we must never forget, and that is that the gospel, the very message that man must hear if he would be saved, if he would be born from above, is itself from above. That is what our Lord is telling Nicodemus, and it is what he is telling us in here today. That because man is born in sin without knowledge of how to save himself from this sin, the way of salvation must come down to us, for such knowledge is not within him. No one has ever figured it out on their own. We remember the apostle Peter, you, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So salvation is not known no way of knowing and trying to figure out. This is what they come up with. So they can't come up with something that, that gets them to heaven. They'll just come up with no heaven and create evolution, as we heard in Sunday school this morning. Or we'll create another God or another religion that figures out another way to get it to us a God of our own imagination. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, notice it, who is in heaven. What is he saying? What, no one has ascended to heaven and received the message of how sinners can be saved and then brought it back down to tell us. Heaven being, of course, a metaphor for the very presence of the eternal God in whom is all wisdom and knowledge. For surely the, create, the Creator, Almighty God, knows how we sinful human beings can be put into paradise and live forever and ever. Surely He knows how we can get there. But how do we get up there to ask him and then come back to tell people about it and then warn them and tell them so that they can do it too? We can't do that. And we could go to the moon maybe and come back and tell them about what the moon is like, but we can't go to heaven, find out what the gospel is and bring it back down and tell people about it. But Jesus declared that there was one, that there is one. Who can? In fact, there is one who has, and it is the Lord Himself. This is an amazing verse of Scripture, brethren. Jesus here is declaring not only His humanity, but His deity. He says first that He came down from heaven, so His origin is there. Again, we're thinking about heaven, we're thinking about the presence, the abode of God. Who can bring us the knowledge of the saving message of the gospel down here from heaven to earth so that we might know how to save, get saved from all this sin and death and corruption that we see happening? Who will bring it down to us that we might know? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus who came from heaven. The gospel originated in heaven. It is the eternal plan of the Godhead. And Jesus Christ has brought the good news to all who are willing to believe it. This glorious message that was known only in the mind of the triune God, a message so powerful that it can save sinners and give them eternal life. What a message. It's a heavenly message. It comes with extraordinary power because it, it came out of heaven. It can create life. Man knows nothing that can do that. That's why he has to receive it from above. A message completely kept 
from all humans who've ever lived upon the earth has come down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can he know it? Because he's God. He's very God. He came down from heaven. His humanity did not come down from heaven, for that was created by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. But as God, he condescended to man by assuming upon himself the robes of humanity while ever remaining God, the great mystery of the incarnation. He who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven, present tense, was just standing there telling Nicodemus. Now here we have what's called a textual variant, meaning that the words here, the phrase, who is in heaven, are not found in certain Greek manuscripts, particularly the older ones, the Alexandrian text type. So you won't see this perhaps but in a margin or a footnote in the ESV or the New American Standard, because they utilize the Alexandrian for their translation. But the reason you see it in the New King James or the King James is because it's widely attested in the majority text or what's known as the Byzantine text. Now, depending upon which Greek scholar you'll read, you'll have those who say it is a part of the original and then others who say that it isn't. I don't know. Without getting in it too much, I like to think that it was in the original. But either way, brethren, the meaning of the phrase remains true. That is, that while Christ was standing there as the Son of Man, as he uses this phrase, Nicodemus of all men would have known this, that he was right there in that moment declaring himself the Messiah because Daniel 7 was the promise of the Messiah, the Son of Man. It was a bold declaration to tell Nicodemus right there. But as he was standing there telling him that, that as God, he was also at that very moment in heaven. Again, it's a metaphor of sorts, brethren, because heaven is the eternal bold of God. God is omnipresent. And the point of all of it, brethren, however, is this, that the message of the gospel originated in heaven. It's a divine message brought to us by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. A message we've never would have figured out or received on our own had he never came. To validate this even further, you hear what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The message, that is the things Christ was speaking about, testifying about, bearing witness of, is the gospel. It is this message that has come down to man that we might hear it, that we might believe it, and that in believing it, we might have eternal life. That's it. No plan B. No figuring out anything else. And so, point one, the message is the gospel. But point number two is that I want you to see the message is explained. The message is explained. Verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We ask the question, don't we, brethren? What are these earthly things to which our Lord is referring well, doesn't it make sense that it's everything that he has just previously communicated to Nicodemus? 
Now, the new birth, of course, is from heaven. It is part of the message of Christ in Nicodemus, but I think the reason that he calls it earth, these things that's read from verse 1 through to verse 10 or whatever are earthly things is for two reasons. Number one is because though the message and the new birth is from heaven, it occurs on earth. And secondly, because Jesus used earthly analogies to explain it. The idea of a birth is an earthly reality. Angels don't do that in heaven. The idea of wind blowing is an earthly reality. So both of which Christ used to explain the message of the new birth, which, of course, is connected to the very gospel itself. The doctrine of the new birth was a doctrine born in heaven, but Jesus is explaining it on earth using earthly analogies. And because he brought it down, he, he brought it down to Nicodemus's level to make it understandable for any normal thinking man, Nicodemus should have understood it. And if he really understood it, well, that meant he should have really believed it. But apparently at this moment, he didn't either. So with what amounts to a rebuke to Nicodemus, our Lord says, if you don't understand these earthly things, how will you understand if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if I were to tell you plainly, using earthly analogies, if I were just to tell you plainly the truth about myself as the God-man, the truth about what I came to do, the truth about why I'm going to do what I'm going to do, all things which are truths that came from heaven, then Nicodemus, you would never get it. You would never get it. Because you didn't even get the truths that I just explained using your own life's experiences here on earth. But praise the Lord, Nicodemus' ignorance and unbelief did not keep Jesus from telling us those heavenly things. Verse 13 is knowledge only known in heaven, which Christ now states plainly. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. The purpose of Christ ascending was to save sinners through the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that poor, helpless, ignorant sinners can be saved. You actually can live forever in a place called paradise, heaven, whatever name you'd like to give it. It is the place of no more suffering and no more dying. The gospel was given, of course, obviously, in the Old Testament in seed form. It was conveyed through types and shadows that a Savior would come to save His people, Daniel 7, one of them, from their sin. And, <coughs> excuse me, and, his, and those who put their hope in the hope of the promised Savior would be saved. Of course, they wouldn't need the new birth to do it, but it happened. It happened many times in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But now in the new covenant, we're saved, putting our hope in the Savior who's already come, who's already died for the sins of His people. And so Christ is going to explain the gospel to us. Not every theological nuance about the gospel, not every detail about the gospel, but the gospel nevertheless. From verse 14 forward, He opens up more and more what the gospel is, what God does in the gospel, and what, where man's place is in it. So we're going to be studying. I'm not sure how many sermons are going to come out of it. One, two, I'm not sure, but it takes us to the end of verse 21. 
And we'll be looking at those heavenly things in the days ahead. But right now, we see that our Lord explained the gospel to us by simply going back to one of those types and one of those shadows. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this is quite extraordinary. You could go ahead and turn there. I think you should look at this with your own eyes. In Numbers chapter 21, this very tragic event occurred so many hundreds of years ago prior to Nicodemus and our Lord speaking here. But it would become a type, a very type and shadow of the cross, the very cross of Christ that God would use to actually save his people from their sins. Now, uh, Numbers 21, there's this very brief narrative picking up in verse 4. It's only six verses long, and I almost feel like it's just dropped down in the middle of various things going on. <clears throat> and because our Lord makes a reference to it, we should look at it. Let's see what happens. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4 to verse 9. Then they, that is the Israelites, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. We, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray <clears throat> excuse me, to the Lord that he... Take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. <clears throat> Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. He lived. Wow. And so our Lord say here, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is he saying? Simply this, brethren, that we've all sinned against God. We've all sinned and we've all murmured and complained against God's goodness and His mercy. <clears throat> Thus, we've all been spiritually bitten by the serpent. Brethren, the poison of iniquity flows through all our veins through every child of Adam. And this is why we will all physically die and why we will all perish in hell eternally for our sin if we don't find the cure. And clearly, Jesus has told us he is now that cure. It's the only one. There's no human serum for the snake bite of our sin. No other remedies coming, brethren. No other means to live eternally in the kingdom of God than to look to Christ. To look to Christ. That is why the next verse says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have eternal life. Now, this takes us to the third point. <clears throat> Number one, the message of the gospel. Number two, the message is explained. Now, thirdly, the message believed or not believed. Believed or not believed. Verse 11, Jesus said again, Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and what? You do not receive our witness. Now, brethren, many explanations have been given as to why our Lord uses the plural here in these pronouns. And we could take a stab at it, but ultimately our Lord doesn't tell us. 
Some have suggested he was speaking of his, referring to his disciples, but they really weren't evangelists by this time. Others say that he's speaking of himself and John the Baptist. Still others have said he's referring to himself and the prophets. Even still, some have suggested he's speaking of the Trinity, that the plural here was used as an op- like in the opening pages of Genesis. So here, too, our Lord is speaking of himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. To tell you the truth, I'm torn between the last interpretation or it's speaking of John the Baptist. If you look down at verse 27 of the same chapter, this is John the Baptist speaking, and he answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. It ties in with everything I've just been trying to explain to everybody here this morning. John the Baptist's ministry was given to him by God. His gospel was God's gospel. His ministry was given to him, and he understood, and he did things because God enabled him by the Spirit of the Lord to do it. But whatever is meant by our Lord using the plural pronouns, this much we know. Nicodemus was given a clear explanation of his need to be saved, how he could be saved, and at this moment, he tragically failed to believe. You do not receive our witness. Not only did Nicodemus not believe, but our Lord here insinuates with, that with Nicodemus and those who associated with Nicodemus weren't believing either. Verse 12, it's interesting, the you there in verse 12, if I have told you, it's also in the plural. I was thinking that it might be sort of southern there. If I told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, I don't know, but... Meaning, I think what he's meaning here is that Nicodemus, not only did you not believe my message, the entire Sanhedrin doesn't even believe it. No one in Jerusalem of any stature. And Nicodemus, you rejected it even though, it, even though it's coming straight out of heaven as I speak it to you. I mean, who better to give the gospel than the one who created it? This is the great roadblock to entering the kingdom of heaven for man. Indeed, from a human perspective, it really is the only roadblock, really. And that roadblock simply is unbelief. Once you've been told the gospel, once you've been told the bad news and then you're given the, the good news and you look at both of those things and you say, well, I don't really believe either one of them. Well, that's what's going to send you to hell. Of course, your sin is the reason but if you believed, you wouldn't go. Nicodemus was given a clear explanation of why he needed to be saved. You must be born again. And in verse 14, he was even told how he could be saved. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is what he's going to tell him. And of course, Jesus, knowing what was in his heart, as we've already learned, knowing at that moment he was not believing, he refused to look to Christ. For had he been believing, he would have been looking to Jesus. Just as those Israelites who were Israelites were dying because of the snake bite looked upon the bronze serpent upon the pole. You see, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Had the Lord perhaps told Nicodemus to do some hard religious act, some great form of penance or good works, Nicodemus probably would have tried it. His pride could have handled that. But look. But again, because he was told to just look to Jesus and he would be saved, that was just too simple. It's silly. 
In his mind, there had to be something more complicated to getting saved than this. Something that had more religious ceremony to it, perhaps. Anything but look. You remember, that's how Charles Spurgeon was converted. Stopped off in a country church, snowing, and I think the deacon was preaching, had to preach, and didn't really know how to say much, but he just kept telling the people, look, look to Jesus. But to look, to just look, was a stumbling block to his pride. Thus Jesus rebukes him for not believing, even though the gospel was explained to him in simple terms that he could grasp. And this is the difference between heaven and hell, brethren. Do you believe the message of the gospel or do you not believe it? Dear ones, here's the spiritual reality for all of us in here today. What Jesus did with Nicodemus here in our text, he's doing it in here right now this morning. He has revealed the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel has been explained to us. Now it comes down to that third point, do we believe it or not? When I first started writing this message, studying the passage, I thought, man, I was just discouraged. I thought, what are, all, what, what are going to be the applications to these verses, Lord? And then after I got through studying, I came up with nine of them. But I'm only going to give you four. I think some of them may have overlapped, but be that as it may, here's application number one. Dear brethren, if we learn anything at all from this passage, we learn that the gospel is gloriously profound. It is like a diamond with so many beautiful facets. I have been studying the gospel my entire Christian life, brethren, and I am still learning, and I am still in awe of this message. None of us have mined all the glories of the gospel, and I fear too many of God's people get some aspect of the gospel understood under the belt, and they oh, I've got that. Now I want to study end times, or maybe now I want to study if tongues are real or not. You know, I got the gospel. What? So the application is this, brethren. Make it your life's goal to get more and more acquainted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How well do you really know it? Yes, we need only the gospel the size of a mustard seed in order to save a sinner. It's just that powerful. But the gospel is a grand tree. There are limbs upon it that many have not yet explored, at least explored enough to explain it, that somebody might get saved from it. Jesus opened up the new birth to Nicodemus. How well, brethren, do you know the doctrine of regeneration? He opens up the doctrine of the incarnation. And oh, what a well of depth and glory that is. Yet it is a part of the gospel message. He had to be truly God and truly man. It's a part of the gospel. Do you know why you need the active and the passive obedience of Christ? Do you know this? Can you explain it to someone? The gospel is so glorious, so grand. There's so many things about it. An active or passive obedience is the heart of the message. What about propitiation? Heard a really good sermon on that recently. Hope you took good notes. What about the blood, the doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of the cross, the sufferings of Christ? We could go on, brethren. The gospel is huge. 
There's no Christianity without it. There's no Christian without it. And everything we do and everything, how we live for God is rooted in that message. It's rooted in that gospel. When couples have trouble, you get mad at one another. and What heals that? Well, in the Christian home, you ask for forgiveness because you know what a sinner you are. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of faith. Without faith, you will not be saved. Doctrine of repentance, the very doctrine of God. It is all opened up in this beautiful flower we call the gospel. Christ is taking it and he's showing various aspects of it to Nicodemus and he's bringing it down to Nicodemus' level and he still doesn't believe it. Brethren, we can never, ever exhaust the fullness of the gospel in this life. Therefore, it is imperative that we make it our life's goal to know it. How will others believe it if we don't know it and if we can't explain it? It's like having a cure for cancer, being in a hospital room, somebody dying of cancer, and you're holding the remedy in your hand, and well, I, you know, hope things turn out okay, and then you walk out with it. You need to grow in your knowledge of the gospel. If you think you've arrived, you have not. Nobody arrives. We as pastors, we haven't arrived to everything about the gospel. We've learned a lot. A lot of you as Christians have learned a lot, but you have not arrived. Application number two, as you labor to lay hold more and more of that glorious message of the gospel, brethren, labor equally for God to give illumination. For you see, brethren, though Nicodemus was given a clear gospel message from the very author of the gospel himself, he still did not believe. Why? Because he, like all of us, needed the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth to his heart. And Jesus would teach this later, John 16, and when he comes, the Spirit of God will give, he will convict the world of sin. Sinner and saint both need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to make the gospel known and more known to us. Brethren, I beg of you to pray for the Spirit's illuminating power to go forth every Lord's day. Saturday night, make it your goal. Put it on your refrigerator. Pray for the illuminating work of the Spirit of God because we're just, we're just playing church in here if He doesn't do that. Pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the children. Pray for others you know who among us have not yet had the Spirit of God illuminate it to them. But now, thirdly, be prepared for rejection. The blessed Savior openly and freely ministered the truth of the Word of God to Nicodemus, and it was rejected. Calvin said, if they don't receive Christ's testimony, it's no wonder they won't receive ours. Brethren, we must study the gospel. We must learn more and more about all that the gospel is, and we must pray for illumination for ourselves and for our hearers. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit still moves where He wills, doesn't He? We must remember that we can bring, that we can't bring anyone into the kingdom of God. I remember as a young pastor that one of my members would, members would come to me often and they'd have a loved one in the hospital and, and say, they'd say, my, my loved one's not a Christian preacher, would you, would you go and, and save him? I mean, they've actually used language like that. What they meant by that was go there and lead him in the sinner's prayer. 
In those early days, sometimes I would do that. But I had no power to save anyone. We must pray for illumination. We must be able to know the gospel, get a good grasp of the gospel, and be able to explain the gospel and make it earthly so they can understand it. But after all of this, we must trust God with it. We must trust the power of the gospel. We must trust the God of the gospel. And while we weep because of those who reject it, we do not weep as those who have no hope. For it is enough, brethren, that we ourselves have been privileged to be born again by this message ourselves. Our hope, listen to me, some of you struggling with this, our hope and our peace is that God had mercy upon us. That's it. That's ultimate. Again, we may weep and we do weep for those we love who still reject it, but our ultimate happiness cannot be found in the salvation of others. It must be found in Christ alone. For in the day of judgment, He alone will be your sure foundation. He alone will be your comfort when you cross that river of death. And so, brethren, let us be as our Lord know and know that sometimes our gospel witness will be rejected. And when they do, let us trust the God who's still doing all things well. He will be glorified. It is our duty to explain the gospel. It is God's prerogative to apply it to men's hearts. But now, lastly... For anyone here, still here, does not possess, possess a new heart, what hope do you have? Where can you find hope that the Holy Spirit will quicken you alive, that you might trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? Where well, here is your hope. It's in, it's in that message. It's in that message that came down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a divine message. You've never heard it from anyone as it originated with them. It came from the Bible. Therefore, it came down from heaven, and it has great power. That's why Paul was not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Christ, in his great humiliation and condescension, robed himself in our own humanity to communicate to us the saving gospel for us. He is from heaven. If anyone's able to tell, us, to tell us how to get to heaven, it would be he who came from heaven. Just like Buzz Aldrin can tell us all about the moon because he's been there, and we can trust his testimony, for he has firsthand account. And so, too, the blessed Lord Jesus can tell us how to get to heaven because he came from there and is there now. And he's here now by his Spirit through the Word See, your hope for the new birth is the same for all of us. It is thinking about, meditating on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. The good news for Nicodemus is that we get to see how things turned out for him. At the cross of Calvary, his eyes would be open. I expect he saw him. And he would be born again, as just as Jesus said, as he looked on that cross, as Christ was dying for Nicodemus' sins, he believed. And thus, Nicodemus went and got all those aloes and stuff to bury him with because he loved him and he believed him, all because he simply looked to Jesus by faith. He saw Jesus upon the cross dying for him. He knew he was a sinner and he needed a Savior. Now, from the human perspective, which is the one to which God's going to hold you accountable, 
What did Nicodemus do to get into the kingdom of heaven? Again, from a divine perspective, it was all God. But you who are still not saved, God would have you learn something from the life of Nicodemus. And that is that he gave thought to these things. He used the brain he had, the very fact that he showed up to Jesus at night. He shows he was inquisitive. He wasn't prepared to hear what Jesus had to say, but he came nevertheless. And some of you, perhaps even now, you've already tuned me out because it's the end of the sermon and he should be done by now. When the most important thing I've had to say all day is right now. And maybe this is some of you, like Nicodemus, you keep coming to church because maybe you too are wondering what it's all, what it's all about. What is the gospel? What is the way to eternal life? And like Nicodemus, you don't always like what you come here to hear. You don't like coming here and being told that you're a sinner, that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Who wants to hear that? Nicodemus didn't want to hear it. It took him three years. But brethren, the point here is this, that Nicodemus gave thought to these things. In fact, I don't think he ever stopped thinking about Jesus and his words. Nicodemus could have just shrugged it all off and said to himself, I don't care what this new preacher says. I'll figure out how to get to heaven on my own. What's going to happen when I die is going to happen when I die. I'm not going to worry about it. But he didn't do that. For over the next three years or so, he thought, he watched, he meditated on what Jesus had to say to him, and he never gave up trying to understand it all until Christ illuminated him. Dear one who has yet to come into the kingdom, don't stop seeking to understand. Don't give up considering what is the gospel and how does it save. And in the end, hopefully by the grace of God, you will conclude all you have to do is look to Christ. Look to Jesus and you'll be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the simple message of the gospel, how it can save children who have no deep theological bank of knowledge, but know enough to know that they're sinners and that Jesus is the only Savior. Lord, we thank you that you have granted to us the illuminating understanding of this gospel. We pray, Father, for these, my brethren, that and they will continue to grow in their knowledge of it, their appreciation of it, that it would draw them closer and closer to the blessed Savior. For all the limbs of the gospel tree are rooted in him. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.